great testimony, God. Lord, I thank you for tonight. I thank you that we can gather here, that we can look into your word. Father, I thank you for the love letter that you've written us. Father, I pray you'd take it. Would you teach us something from your word tonight? Help us to learn something about you. Lord, I pray you'd help, help us to have something that we could walk out of the doors and be a better servant. God, we love you. You've been good to us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts chapter 7, if you want to go ahead and be turning there in your Bible, just a quick little catch-up if you haven't been here through the study of Acts or Mr. Week or even nothing else, just a little quick review. Um, we, we saw in the church that there was a discord in the early church. The Grecian-speaking Jews uh, had some arguments against the Jewish-speaking, the, the natural native Hebrew-born-speaking Jews, and they said their widows weren't being cared for properly, and so there was some complaining, and the apostles said, hey, Appoint yourselves seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost, and appoint them to it, and we'll give ourselves continually to study. So they went out, appointed seven men, one of which was Stephen, a man, the Bible says, filled with the Holy Ghost. All he's doing is preaching the gospel. All he's doing is telling people about Jesus Christ, about salvation, about what Christ has done. And he has been arrested by the Sanhedrin council. The Sanhedrin has brought him in. They've They've made claims against him. They, they brought him on this little mockery of a trial. They've accused him of blasphemy against the things of God. They, they've accused him of blasphemy against the law of Moses because he says the law wasn't eternal. It had a purpose and a time. And he, they've accused him of blasphemy against the temple because he says that the temple's not eternal. But the temple had, it, had its purpose. And so as we began our study, we saw that he began with Abraham. He began at the beginning. He began with the promise and then how Israel was put in bondage and how he sent Joseph. And Joseph was rejected by his own, but God used him to deliver his people. And then Moses and how God sent Moses and he was rejected by his own. And then God put him on the backside of the Midian desert for 40 years, but then he brought him back and he brought that same Moses back to deliver his people. So Stephen has been showing him how even Moses himself, which the Sanhedrin council holds with the highest of regards, was rejected by his own people. But then God sent that same Moses back. He shows them how all these men were kinsmen redeemers. He's showing the history of the Hebrew, of, of the nation of Israel, uh, and how they constantly reject the ones that God has sent. He makes perfect parallels, as we looked at last week, especially in Moses, the perfect parallels of the life of Christ and with the life of the redeemers that came in before him. And, and now he's showing them that, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God that was sent by God to deliver his people. Just like Moses, he came to his own. His own received him not. He's gone away for a time. Moses came back, and there was no getting out of it that time. God delivered his people. Jesus is coming back. And there's not going to be anything after that. When Jesus comes back, we can read all about it in the other end of the book. We just flip on to the back side. It can tell you all about what we expect when Jesus comes and gets us out. But in verse number 43, Stephen reminds them of, of when Israel had taken up the tabernacle of Malak. We looked at it last week. That was a, um, that was a, a false religion of false gods. It had some brutal, brutal um, child murder, um, sacrifice. It, it, there's a lot of tradition in it. It was the children's sacrifice, and the Jews took that up. They inherited that from some of the people in the land where they're now living, and it shows that, that they went in and they took up the worship of, of Remphon, which is the, the worship of the stars and the planets, 
and instead of worshiping the one that created the stars and the planets, they're now involved in this worship of the stars and the planets. Verse number 44, we'll pick up here, begins to show, Steve, Stephen is showing them how, how they treated the tabernacle. If you remember, we, he dealt with Moses last week and about how he paralleled Moses with Christ, and he's brought him to the point to show him that he has, he, he has not done anything in blasphemy against the law of Moses. He brought him to the end of that discussion, and now he turns over to the temple because he's also been accused of blasphemy against the temple, saying that, that that temple wouldn't last forever. So verse 44 of Acts chapter 7, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him an house. Howbeit, the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? Ye stiff neck and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. So we'll start back up there at verse number seven, I mean at verse number 44 of chapter seven, and kind of work our way down through them a little bit. The tabernacle from the very beginning, the tabernacle was God ordained. It was God designed right down to the least little detail. If you go look at where God gave Moses the law, he gave him everything, the color of thread to use, the type of material to use. He gave him every detail about how to build this temple. The temple was very beautiful. And even though it's considered a, a, a tent, it was beautiful and it was expensive. This was a very expensive piece that they had to build, but it was also very portable even the order of how to set up the tent the nature of how it went up how the 12 tribes had to encamp around it the three the three on each of the four sides everything was laid out in detail for all of them this was God's tent in the center of God's people it is the evidence of God's desire to live amongst his people it is evidence of God's desire to dwell amongst his people listen you and I can, can pay attention to this right here. It's no different for you and I. This is a picture of God's willingness to, to set on the cherubims, on the mercy seat of God, between the cherubims in a tent made by the hands of men that God would bring himself and sit in that just to be in the presence of his people. God desires the same kind of relationship with us, but we see how much God desires to be there that the creator of the universe would come down and sit on this acacia wood box with cherubims on the side overlaid with gold that he would sit there just to be in the presence of his people. The tabernacle is a model made after a heavenly pattern that would have been revealed to Moses and every little detail that is in it speaks of Christ that is to come. So Stephen here, he points out to the Sanhedrin council that, that the tabernacle in all of its divine origin had a temporary purpose. It was never meant to be forever. He, he points out that even though it was built of this incorruptible acacia wood, and even though it was overlaid with gold, that one day it would re be replaced by something far better. When we look in the Revelation and what John saw at a glimpse, we can't even begin to fathom what heaven looks like. We can't even begin to fathom crystal 
or streets that are pure gold, that, that are clear as glass because the gold is so pure, and crystal rivers and walls of, of onyx and jasper and 12 gates, and each gate is of a single pearl. I can't even begin to imagine what heaven must look like. So he, he's trying to show them here that, that it's going to be replaced someday by something a lot better. Now, here's the deal. Not one Jew that is present in this mockery of a trial, not one of the Sanhedrin council, none of the scribes, none of the Pharisees, these are keepers of the law. These people know the law very well. The Sanhedrin is the elite of the, the religious crowd, if you will. Not one of them can deny or refute anything that Stephen is saying because he's simply quoting the Old Testament law and the prophets, what we call the Old Testament. They refer to as the law and the prophet. And everything he's given them is straight out of the book. Verse number 45, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers, until the days of David. The first temple, even though it was designed by God, and even though it was inhabited by God, everything about it was temporary. The materials that it's built out of is temporary. None of it is eternal. The temple was made to travel. Everything about it spoke of being temporary they put this thing up and took it down on a near daily basis for 40 years they traveled in the wilderness going out gathering their manna off the ground breaking down the tent moving through the wilderness for a day setting it up setting up their encampment going to bed getting up gathering their manna for a day taking down the tabernacle and moving about on a daily basis throughout all of the wilderness wanderings they are taking up and putting up and taking down this tent. When they got to the Jordan River, they crossed over the Jordan River. They are taking up and putting down this tabernacle everywhere they go. Even once they're in the promised land and they are fighting against the enemy while they're working on conquering the promised land, they're constantly taking up and taking down the temple. It has no fixed location until years later when David comes along. David brings it into Jerusalem, and he sets it up there in Jerusalem so that it might have a, a permanent place. So everything about the temple, everything concerning it spoke of a temporary nature, and it pointed to something new. Something different, something better, something that is yet to come. It's no different than our faith today. Our faith is awesome. Our faith is beautiful. Our faith is amazing. Our salvation is something to be in love with. The fact that what God has done, but it points to something better. What we have is amazing, but we've not touched the tip of the iceberg of what God has in store for those that love him. So we have a picture of something temporary, but something better to come. Verse number 46, who found favor before God? Desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob, but Solomon built him a house. David decided, he set up the temple as though a permanent thing, so that it would be at Jerusalem, so that God would be at Jerusalem. And David decided, I'm going to build a house for God. I'm, I've got a big, nice house. God deserves something bigger, something better. I'm going to build a nice place. So he tells Nathan, the prophet, about it. Nathan's like, man, that's a great idea. Nathan was, was buying all into it. That would make a, a permanent place for God to reside so that God would always be at Jerusalem. But then God showed up and said, wait a minute, somebody's got to ask me about this. God shows up and Nathan says, no, you, you go tell David he, he can't build me a house. He said he had blood on his hands. David was a warrior. David was a conqueror. God had used him to clean out the promised land, to get out 
all of the foreigners of the land to drive them out. He said, he, he can't build me this house. But, but because of David's desire to do so, God said that he would establish the house of David forever. Just another picture of everything pointing to Christ. So God told Nathan to tell David he's going to have a son. And his son will be able to build me a temple. Verse number 12 of 2 Samuel chapter 7 says, And when the days be fulfilled, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, talking to David, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. I like what it says in verse 13. This is one of those words, if you're, if you're not careful, you can miss what it says. It says, He shall build a house for my name. That's important. It doesn't say he shall build a house for me, and I will dwell there, and I will stay there. He shall build a house for my name. It is representing God, but he says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Another direct re reference to Christ through the lineage of David, the Christ that is to come. It makes it even more evident that just like the original tabernacle, this one is also going to be of a temporary nature. And one day it's going to be replaced. So in time, Solomon is going to build a temple, but David provided everything for it. God said David couldn't build the temple. He didn't say he couldn't buy the stuff for the temple. So David began to store up and to lay up things and to buy the things for the temple that Solomon would, would come one day and build. Stephen quickly makes it obvious to these that have accused him that, that it is absurd to think that the creator of the universe is bound to a single location. It is nothing but foolishness to, to think that this omnipotent, almighty, omnipresent God, not just present here at this time, and in China at this time, and in heaven at this time, and in Russia at this time, but in 1932 at this time, and in 2099 at this time, God is not bound by time. God is not bound by walls. God is not bound by space. He's saying it is foolish to think that you can confine God to this one temple and that this temple has to last forever. If God were bound to a single location, he'd be no different than a little wooden Buddha doll. If God were bound to a single location, he'd be just like a golden calf. Or, or some little wooden trinket. It would be something that if it wanted to move, it couldn't do it unless a man moved it. If God could be bound to a location, then he wouldn't be God. So, so Stephen is, is making all of this stand out as he's pointing his case to Jesus. Verse 48, he says, what Solomon himself made when, when he completed the temple... Solomon dedicated it with a prayer. Acts chapter 7, verse 48, our text says, Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. He's referring back to when the temple had been finished and it was dedicated in a prayer. 1 Kings chapter 8, from verse 23 to 53 is the whole prayer if you want to go read it. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 23 through 53. I'm not going to read all of them, but let me read the first part of them. Again, in verse 22, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel, spread forth his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath who keep his covenant and mercy with thy servants that walk before thee with all their heart, who has kept with thy servant David my father that thou promisest him 
Thou spakest also with thy mouth, and hast fulfilled it with thine hand, as it is this day. Therefore now, Lord God of Israel, keep with thy servant David my father, that thou promised him, saying, There shall not fail thee a man in my sight to sit on the throne of Israel, so that thy children take heed to their way, that they walk before me as thou hast walked before me. And now, verse 26, O God of Israel, let thy word, I pray thee, be verified, which thou spakest unto thy servant David my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded. And yet thou have respect unto the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to hearken unto the cry and to the prayer which thy servant prayeth before thee today that mine eyes may be open toward this house night and day, even toward the place which thou hast said my name shall be there, that thou mayest hearken unto the prayer which thy servant shall make toward this place. Solomon makes it completely clear at the dedication prayer of the temple that he has just built with all of the gold and the cedar beams of Lebanon and all the things that has been purchased at great expense and brought in and built this magnificent temple, he has made it clear that to think that God would live here in this temple is ridiculous. For any man to think that God would reside here inside the walls of a house it is foolishness. Solomon, from his prayer, obviously has no concept like that about God, nor does any of the prophets who wrote about God or the Messiah, which is to come. Verse 49 and 50. Stephen is referring here to, to Isaiah 66. It gives us a little more correct concept of God, if you will. Verse number 47. Stephen says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? Verse 66 of the book of Isaiah or chapter 66, verse number 1, Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is this house that ye build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. How much clearer can Stephen make the inadequacy of the temple be I mean what purpose could God possibly have with a house made with human hands what kind of God would we have if he needed us to build him a house so so Stephen is showing the, the inadequacy I mean he's talking about the God who spanned the heavens with his voice the God who spoke and all things came into existence the God who at the, the voice, at the sound of his voice, the greater light that rules the day and the lesser light that rules the night came into existence. The, the God who sprinkled the earth with um, plants and animals and all kinds of beautiful things before he put mankind here. The kind of God that... that Telleth the number of the stars and calleth them all by name. The kind of God that, that hollowed out the oceans with his hand. You've heard me say a lot of times the oceans aren't where the oceans are because that's the deepest places on earth. They're there because that's where God put them. God hollowed them out with his hand. He set bounds about them that they come not past that. 
God put the oceans, he put the water there, and he said, you stay right there. Another cool thing I've shared sometime in the past, some of you remember it, and some of you may not have been here, is that when God created the stars, there, there is some credibility to what scientists say. Anybody ever, you, you see somebody maybe way off, you see them shoot a gun, and you see a recoil, and then later you see a light flash, and then eventually you hear the noise. You know what I'm talking about? So light travels faster than sound. There's a delayed reaction. Fireworks. Anybody go to the fireworks show out on the lake? So the further away you get, the longer you get all the boom-booms from the lights. If you get close, you get the flash and the boom at the same time. But if you back all the way up to the train trussels, you see a bunch of flash, and about the time the next one goes up, you start hearing it. So there's delayed reactions. So even light has a travel speed. Nothing is automatic. So because of the distance of the stars, they say that it can take several billion light years for the light from a single star to get to the Earth because the light has to travel from there to here. It's not just the light. It's not like this light. It's a long way off. It has to travel. Now, they say that some of these stars, of course, they're, they're bound in their foolishness that the, the universe is billions of years old. We have God's word of creation, but they say that it had to have billions of years, and that some of those stars could have burned out millions of years ago, and we don't even know it yet because the light that left that star was headed this way. So y'all get the picture of what I'm talking about, don't you? If it's here, you've got this stream of light that finally reached the earth, but because it's so far away, when, the, when that star goes out, it could take millions of years before that channel of light goes out. Anybody know what I'm talking about? When God made the stars, he made the stars visible. That's impressive to me. Do you understand the forethought that it takes to do that? To put something billions of light years away and put the light channel already in place so that when he put Adam and Eve there and they looked up, they saw the beauty of the heavens? What kind of powerful God, what kind of omnipotent, almighty, all-everywhere, omnipresent God, what kind of God with that kind of foreknowledge could need a man to build a house for him? That, that's what Stephen is trying to get the point across. Why would this God need a temporary building? To, to make it even worse, the Jews here are accusing Stephen a blasphemy against the temple because they're saying that he spoke of the temple as though the temple isn't forever. These Jews are placing so much importance on this temple because the temple and the design of the temple was given to Moses, right? Well, the temple that they're standing in holding this marker of a trial ain't that temple, is it? That temple's already been destroyed. That temple's already probably disintegrated by now for the most part. If that ain't enough, the one that Solomon built, that one's already been burned down by fire because of their disobedience, because they turned their back on God. That temple's already been destroyed. There's already been a calling back of the land. Now they're back under Roman, uh, under Roman rule and Roman oppression, but yet there's another temple there, but yet they still can't see the, the non-eternal position of the temple. I mean, for us to look back and see, that seems pretty simple, right? You, you, you're multiple temples in, so it can't be the only one. It, it can't be eternal, but, but for them, they see it as the last one that, that God has given them there. So Steve is just, just trying to, to make a point of how, how ridiculous is it to think that this temple is supposed to last forever? 
Can't you see? You're, you're accusing me of blaspheming against Moses and, and against his temple. Jesus says, and, and this is something they accused Stephen because Stephen repeated what Jesus said, talking about that there was one greater than the temple and that Jesus was greater than the temple. And so that's another of the blasphemy against God. But in Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees have accused Jesus. You remember the story? They were walking in the field and they plucked some grain of corn to have something to eat. That, that was a pretty easy story, right? So the Pharisees come along and they accuse them of, as usual, breaking the law of the Sabbath. Because God said on the seventh day, thou shalt rest. And so they're out plucking a few grains of corn to get something to eat. They're being accused of breaking the Sabbath day law. Matthew chapter 12, verse number 3, Jesus said, Have you not read what David did when he was in hunger that they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread? He went into the house of God. He went into this temple where, men, where they weren't even supposed to go. Only the priest could go in there. And, and inside the tabernacle on the showbread, they went in and ate what belonged to the priest. He said, did you not hear how they went in and ate the showbread, did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days, the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? They go out on the Sabbath and do sacrifices. They are profaning the Sabbath. They're breaking the law, but yet they're blameless. But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. That's what Jesus said. All Stephen has done is just, just brought it back around. So the accusation that Stephen has blasphemed the temple is, is a false charge, just like the accusation that he had blasphemed Moses. You can prove that the law is not forever. He's proving here that, that the temple is not forever. But what has happened? It's got to be careful with this one for us. What has happened is that the Pharisees have turned that temple into an idol. We're good at that. We may not have a golden calf sitting on our mantle. We may not have a Buddha doll perched up in the front yard. You may not even have a rabbit's foot in your pocket. But we all got pieces of some idols if we're not careful. I said we all got pieces of some idols. Things that we put too much importance on. It's as simple as this. And this, this isn't. This, this is in favor of my son. This isn't against my son because this Pharisee right here raised my son. And this Pharisee right here grew up legalistic. And this Pharisee right here grew up about the law and the dress and all that stuff. And I've made it clear before I made it clear, I don't care what you wear as long as you wear something. Glory to God. Just don't worry about what I wear. Is it tradition? Yeah, that's all it is. It's just what I'm comfortable in. It's what it is tradition. My, my son wears suits I can't even afford. But... It's because he was raised by a Pharisee that taught him to dress like that at church. My, my son listens to old southern gospel music because that's what we rode around and listened to. That and Faith Baptist Church choir music. Somebody said amen. That's what we did. So if y'all remember, and the reason it hasn't been done is because we don't have a million dollars lying around. We talked about expanding the foyer and making that bigger and nicer and more welcoming. We also talked about taking out the pews and putting chairs in here. I think the chairs would be more comfortable. That's all I want to do. It makes it a little more modern, a little more current. We voted, and the entire church voted, yes, let's do it. 
they didn't vote it by putting a million dollars in when none of us had a million dollars. So it hadn't been done, but it was passed. Seven people voted no to the entire church. One of them was my son. I'm okay with that. Somebody asked, why, why was your son vote no? I said, because I taught my children to stand up for what they believe in. If you believe in something, do it. Just, just do your best. And I said, it doesn't bother me a bit that my son stood up because I know why my son did. My son loves these pews right here. He, he loves the tops of them. He loves everything about them. This is what I see. I'm, I'm having to learn a lot. I'm, I'm having to learn that contemporary artists are saying, saved by the same blood of Jesus I am. Sing about the same blood of Jesus that, that I believe in and, and that we're all washing the same blood. And now I can listen to anything. That wasn't true for a long time. As long as it's something about, let me tell you about my Jesus. And he'll do the same for you that he did for me. I, I can listen to that. I can listen to most any gospel radio station you turn on from contemporary. Oh, that's not true. Robin and I are both about the same. We listen to that, that bluegrass, that little twangy. I, I can't. I, the bluegrass is a little much for me. I can't go with that one. Pretty much anything else I listen to. I told my son, be careful. Be careful that you don't let those wooden pews become an idol. And that's what they are. See, things like that, I'm, just, I'm, I'm emphasizing this because this happens to every one of us. This happens to me. Traditions of men become laws of God in the mind of mortal man if we're not careful. We get so bound up by tradition. Let me tell you something. Fifteen years ago, I would have preached because I'd heard it preached. If you didn't have a coat and tie, you can't stand in a pulpit. You, you can't wear shorts to church. What kind of heathen? I would have preached that because I was taught that kind of garbage. But, but if you can't prove it in the book, then don't preach it from the, pulpit, from the podium. Matter of fact, if the Holy Spirit don't give it to you to preach, don't preach it at all. And he's not going to give you something contrary. To, do I believe in modesty? Absolutely. I believe, I believe in, in a lot of things, but I'm just telling you, it's easy to take traditions of men and turn them into laws if you're not careful. And the church is killing itself with that stuff. There's so much legalism going on in a lot of the church that the church is destroying itself from the inside out. The church is supposed to be about what Christ is about. Love people. Love people. Love people. Love the lost. Tell them about Jesus. Love on the hurting. Pray for them. Try to help one another. Be in one accord. Love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, that ye have love one for another. If we don't have that, then the world can never see Christ in us. But we get so caught up over these little trivial things that they become idols. And idols, those little idols which are man-made laws, they become barriers in the church. They become discord makers within the church. They become things that, that people argue about that don't make a hill of beans about the Word of God. They're traditions of men. So what he, what he has here is, is the Pharisees have made this temple into an idol. This temple has become their God. This is supposed to be the dwelling place of God. Stephen's trying to tell them God doesn't dwell here. Now it's in the days of Jesus Christ when the, in the dispensation period of grace. God dwells here. This is the temple of God. This is what the Holy Spirit's working on cleaning out. The Holy Spirit's not worried about dust on that speaker. He's worried about dust on my shelf in here. The Holy Spirit's not worried about a door being shut over there. He's worried about me shutting the door right here and trying to keep him out. This is the temple that the Holy Spirit wants to clean out. This is what God's working on. It's this temple, but it's not a stationary temple because God dwells in all of us. Verse 53, Stephen says, Y'all one hard-headed bunch. In a nutshell, that, that's, that's Hoganese. 
How much more proof do you need? Ye stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. You know, there, there's three ways to oppress the Holy Spirit. One is to grieve the Holy Spirit. One is to quench the Holy Spirit. And one is to resist the Holy Spirit. A lost person cannot grieve the Holy Spirit. The only person that can grieve a Holy Spirit are those sitting in here right now. Somebody that is saved, born again, washed in the blood of the Lamb of God, and filled with the Holy Spirit, that person can grieve the Holy Spirit. The church can quench the Holy Spirit. You see it done a lot. If the Holy Spirit is moving and because of tradition, the song has to end and the next song has to start or the altar has to close and the message has to start, that's called quenching the Spirit. That, that's when, when God is moving, stay out of the way. See, even that goes back to tradition. God can start moving in a service and be people at the altar, and you can have the choir sing another song, and you can have a special sing another song, and God's moving, people are crying, and God's working, and, and already, because of tradition, there'll be people sitting in the pews talking about, mm, mm, mm. we ain't getting out of the one o'clock day. Mm. How many times you going to sing that song? I done heard it a thousand times. I'll be singing it in my sleep tonight. Mm-mm. But if you walk down and close that, that's called quenching the Holy Spirit. When you get those rare occasions when the Holy Spirit decides to smile on where you are and move, shut up, sit down, and get out of the way. Let the Holy Spirit have his way. One of the things we talked about with the hoppers the other night, he come back there at the end, won't know what to do. I said, brother, don't ask me nothing. If the Holy Spirit ain't giving you nothing, pray before you walk back up there. He walked back there when, when the comedian was up here, the one that I'd never heard of before. Walk by there talking. I said, don't ask me what to do. This is God's church. You do this every day. You're serving his. Ask him what to do. Pray about what to sing and, and go back up there and do whatever the Holy Spirit does. If you're not careful, you can quench the Holy Spirit. We can do it in our own lives. God can give us something to do, and God may be going to bless a day, but we'll quench it because we don't want to do that. But then you have the ones that, that can deny the Holy Spirit, the one, the one that can resist the Holy Spirit. That's those that are lost and on their way to hell. I resisted the Holy Spirit for a lot of years. Being raised in church and taught about some about religion, but being taught about the things of God, I was given lots of opportunities to be saved that I ran from it. That's, anybody know what I'm talking about? I ain't, the only, I ain't the only one with some running lungs in the ammo. That's called resisting the Holy Spirit. So, so Stephen says, you stiff-necked. You hard-headed bunch of men, you, you are resisting the Holy Spirit. But then, he really, I mean, this is not here. This has got to cut. He says, you uncircumcised at heart. Do you understand? Can you even begin to imagine what kind of insult that would be to a Pharisee? Y'all understand that circumcision meant I'm of God. And uncircumcised was a heathen on their way to hell. Y'all know that, right? Circumcision went back. To, to the covenant with Abraham and that Abrahamic covenant. Oh, that, that circumcision in the flesh made them holier than thou. Jesus came 
to make everybody one. It's not about circumcision of the, fl- of the flesh. It's about circumcision of the heart. So here they are sitting there thinking they're all holier than thou. And basically Stephen says, hey, you bunch of Samaritans, let me tell you something. I mean, he might as well spit in their face. Because he says, kind of like how Jesus said, you men do uh, dress up and appear holy and righteous on the outside, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. Basically what Stephen says, you act all holy. You come up here and you're putting on a front like you're holy, but, but really you're nothing but a bunch of uncircumcised, hard-headed nuts because you won't hear the truth. See, what, what happened right here is Stephen's been on the defense the whole time. Ever since this started, he started making his plea. He started making his case, and he's offered all of his defense against everything to try to let them see who Christ is and what it is that's there. But now he's taking on an offensive position. Stephen has begun to kind of turn, and he points out the sin that they're living in because they are continually rejecting the drawing of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's nothing new The Hebrews have always rejected who God has sent. That's what he spent all of those chapters trying to tell them, that that you have rejected everybody that God sent before the Messiah, and now you're pointing out the Messiah himself. That is a sin against the Holy Ghost. Remember, I've already said, Stephen's not trying to get off the hook here. He's not trying to prove himself innocent here. What he's trying to do is get a bunch of Pharisees saved. He's trying to get them to see Jesus Christ. Verse 52, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? He's talking to the Pharisees. Their fathers were probably Pharisees, maybe Levitical tribe. But he says, which of the prophets have your fathers not persecuted? They have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one. He says they killed the ones that talked about Jesus. They killed the one that talked about the coming of the Messiah. Of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. It ain't enough he just called them uncircumcised. Now he says you're a bunch of murderers. You, you, you've killed him all throughout the Old Testament. You see God send his people messages. We all know this, right? God's people would be doing things in sin. And God would send a prophet to tell them about their sin. God would send a man to point those things out. And God would communicate with them. And, and what that meant is the prophet knew they were going to get beat up. Be, being, being beaten, being rejected by the people was nothing new to, to the prophets because they're coming in and they're, they're telling people, I mean, not one time, not one time in anywhere in the Word of God will you find one prophet trying to be politically correct. Not once will you try them to find them trying to walk on eggshells and dance around the truth. They come to proclaim the Word of God, to proclaim it fully, wholly, and completely, without stuttering, without hesitation. They, they come in to bring the spiritual truth. So as a result, persecution was expected. If you remember Moses, all he did was try to redeem the people. All he did was try to come get them out. And then they ain't even got away from Egypt. They're backed up to the Red Sea. People already turned against him. Plague after plague after plague after miracle after miracle they've seen God do. And now here they are at the Red Sea, and, and they're already turned against him. He holds up a staff. God parts the Red Sea, and they all cross over, and everything's hunky-dory. They look back, here comes the Egyptian. Now they want to kill him again. 
God closes up the Red Sea, drowns Pharaoh and all of his army and the horses and the chariots, and they go out and they get out and things get a little sticky. They ain't got no water to drink. Now they want to stone Moses. All throughout the Word of God, they're always trying to stone the ones that are there. Elijah himself, the one who took on the, the, the 450 false prophets of Baal, the one who had them slain, the one who called fire down from heaven. Elijah himself would have been killed by that woman Jezebel if she could have found him. So you see persecution in all of them. Isaiah is told, to, is told that he was placed inside of a hollow log and sewn in half in the days of Manasseh. God told Jeremiah not to marry a woman because a woman shouldn't have to endure the kind of infliction that he would be, be suffering. And he was abducted by some Jews and carried into Egypt and was stoned to death. Zechariah was martyred between the temple and the altar. You look all throughout the Old Testament, God sent his word through his prophets and they constantly martyred him. He said, that's your father's doing this. Stephen says, your fathers are the ones that did this stuff. Your fathers are the ones that killed them. But you, oh, you've done way worse than your fathers. Your fathers killed the one that God used to tell about sin. Your fathers killed the one that God used to say the Messiah was coming. You killed the Messiah. You killed the one that all the prophet and all the law talked about. You killed the king. You killed the kinsman redeemer. You murdered the one that we've been looking for. I wonder if the Pharisees are ticked off yet. He, said, he says, you've done way worse than them. He says, the law and the prophets, you know, the word that you men know very well, you've had to memorize, and you hold it over the, the heads of all the people. They spoke plainly about the Messiah that is to come, and Jesus came in the fullness of the prophets, and you murdered him. Verse 53, he says, Who have received the law by the disposition of angels, and have not kept it. He's talking to them. He says, you've been given the law. You've been given the word, but you've not kept it. In Moses' account of the giving of the law, he says in Deuteronomy 33 and verse number 2, the Lord came from Sinai, rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran. He came with ten thousands of saints from his right hand, went a fiery law for them. God brought the law down to Moses and he wrote the commandments in that table of stone with his own finger from the very beginning the Hebrew people have broke the laws of God while the printing press was still running while God was still up there on the mountain still writing the law the very first one that he wrote is thou shalt have no other gods before me number two thou shalt not make any graven images and he goes on, th those are the laws. While God still has the stones on the printing press, while he's still writing it out and ain't even published them yet, they're down there getting Aaron to make them a gold and a calf. So from the very beginning of the law, the Hebrew people have consistently broken the law. From that day until this day right here where Stephen is standing, this is a long-going, many times repeated history of the Jewish nation to reject the things of God, to break the laws of God, and then to top it all off, they murder God's son. And now you want to accuse me of blasphemy. You brought me here to accuse me of blasphemy against Moses and against the temple. Verse number 54 says, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. 
and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Anybody in here ever, ever make your mom so mad that she talked to you through her teeth and they didn't move? Boy, I ain't going to tell you again. I said, you better get up and get it. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The teeth ain't moving. They're grinding a little bit. Boy, I tell you what, if I have to get up out of this chair. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Mama done got hot when you get to that. Best thing you do is whatever she said, do it with a smile. Or you're going to do that Indian rain dance. I don't know about y'all, Mama, but see how much longer my left arm is than my right arm? She hold me up by that, and we dance in some circles. Boy, she tear that backside up. When they start talking through their teeth, you best go getting something done. That's where the Pharisees are. They even just chapped them. They, they brought him forth. They made all these accusations, and he starts out nice enough. Let's, let's talk about what you're talking about. Let's talk about where the promise started with Abraham. Let's take a look at Joseph and how God sent Joseph to be a redeemer and gave him a dream and his own rejected him. And he goes over off in the land of Egypt, becomes the second most powerful man in the nation, and God redeems his people through him. Let's talk about Moses, the one that, that you're accusing me of blasphemy against, about how God sent a redeemer and his own people rejected him, and God had to put him on the backside of the Midian Desert 40, 40 years and bring him back, and they still rejected him time and time and time again. Let's talk about the law, the one that you say that we're breaking, the ones that, that the, the Hebrew nation was breaking before God ever finished writing them. And been breaking them every day since. Let's talk about the ones you men are breaking. Let's talk about the ones your fathers broke. You know, when your fathers killed the prophets and they beat the ones that God sent. Let's talk about you. Let's talk about the, the one you murdered, the Messiah, you. Jesus, the one you took out. You didn't just reject him. You beat him and you carried him to Pilate. You prosecuted him and had him slain on the cross. Let's, let's talk about you. Well, we're starting to see why Stephen ended up stoned, right? <laughs> The truth is, if God wanted Stephen out of it, God would have gotten Stephen out of it. Um, that, that's a, we got Mama talking through her teeth, so that's probably a pretty good place to pick up next week. We'll, we'll take a turn, Lord willing. We'll start right there. We're at 8 o'clock. So Y'all pray, Lord willing. We'll, we'll pick up and, and go on there next week. God, thank you so much. God, thank you for this book, God. Thank you, Lord, truly for the acts of the apostles, God, that we can... Look and, and see the way they live their lives, Lord, without fear. Lord, without hesitancy from peer pressure. God, they stood boldly and firmly on the truth, no matter what went on around them, no matter the persecution that came their way. God, they didn't walk on eggshells. They weren't worried about politically correct. God, they just, they just served you. They just did their best to try to live their life pleasing to you. They, they tried to be a living example, a witness. They they. Lord, Stephen's trying his best right here to get the Pharisees saved. He, he's doing his best to tell them about Christ. God, I, help us to be like that. God, I pray you'd help us, Father, to, to have that kind of dedication, that kind of passion to serve you, God. I pray you'd help us at Faith Baptist Church to be that church, God, that truly wants to reach out into the streets and change this, this town one soul at a time. I pray you'd help each one of us, God, within our own lives, within our own circle of friends and own circle of contacts, people that we run into on a day-to-day -day basis, God, to, to be a living witness, a true witness, God. May we not be a witness with our lips, but a witness with our lives. I pray you'd help us that people would see Christ in us and Christ through us. 
God, I pray for everybody in this place. Would you bless every soul here, God? I pray you'd bless every family represented, God. I pray you'd be the centerpiece of their home. Keep a hedge of protection about them and help us to be pleasing to you in all we do. We love you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.